0: Amazingly, President Biden is warning Israel that allowing politicians to be involved in nominating judges is going to perhaps affect our shared
1: democratic values. Where well, of course in America, politicians do exactly that. Eugene Kontorovich is a scholar of international law, an expert in the Israeli-Arab conflict, and a professor at George Washington University's Scalia School of Law. At a time when many have lost faith in international organizations, I sat down with them to discuss what role they should actually play.
0: With all international institutions, the trade-off is how to be able to rely on them for small things and not put faith in them for important things.
1: We also discuss the current protests in Israel, the U.S. State Department's role in supporting some of them, and whether judicial reforms proposed by Netanyahu's coalition are, in fact, a threat to democracy.
0: In Israel, the court picks its own successes. So what you essentially have is the supreme power in the state is held by a self-selecting group of people, completely insulated from any democratic process. This is
1: American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek professor Eugene kontorovich such a pleasure to have you on American thought leaders great pleasure to be here thank you well so we've been planning this interview for quite some time and you know lo and behold as you come sitting at the Capitol um, these protests have erupted in Israel um, ostensibly about democracy democracy in Israel is being threatened that is the the mantra that we keep hearing um, this is something that you have deep knowledge about. So I think this is where we have to start. So what's happening there? Uh, So what's happening there is, as uh, sometimes
0: happens, almost the opposite of what you would conclude by uh, reading the mainstream media. Um, There are serious challenges to democracy uh, in Israel, but there are challenges that come from the almost all-encompassing power of the court and government bureaucrats. And in the absence of the Constitution, the Supreme Court has taken for itself and for a cadre of government lawyers massive powers. For example, the Supreme Court has said that it can strike down statutes. Then they went on, and even beyond that, and said that they can block any government action that they don't think is a good idea. So they can set refugee quotas. They can control military tactics. And now, most shockingly, they've said, They can even remove a sitting prime minister uh, absent any statutory impeachment provisions or anything like that. Um, And they've gone on to say that if the Knesset were to pass laws, to pass a constitution, they could strike down the constitutional laws as being against some higher constitution known only to them. In short, they have uh, said that they are the absolute final power over all government action and over all matters of public policy in Israel. And what's additionally alarming, and what makes the matters particularly intolerable, is uh, these final judges of every democratic decision are not picked in any manner that is democratic. Indeed, they control their own selection. So, unlike in America, the judges are not picked by the prime minister, the president, they're not picked by the legislature, they're picked by a committee that is controlled by judges. And needless to say, um, they are not going to pick people who disagree with them or who think they've wrongly decided any of their cases. They're not going to pick people who believe in judicial restraint. Uh, They're going to pick people who uh, basically are yes men to what they're currently currently saying. So what you essentially have is the supreme power in the state is held by a self-selecting group of people completely insulated From any democratic process. As a matter of fact, uh, they've also said that the Attorney General, who's not a member of the cabinet, but is a um, really officer of the Supreme Court, representative of the the court in the government, can veto any government action. So if the government wants to um, hire someone, fire someone, or appoint someone to a committee, or take any single action, the Attorney General can prevent it from happening simply by saying, no, I don't think it's a good idea without any legal rationale. And indeed, the Attorney General has currently said that the Prime Minister of Israel, who was just elected a couple months ago, is incapacitated and is not allowed to be involved in judicial reform because of some legal proceedings against him. Uh, Even though he was elected, with the public being fully aware of these legal proceedings, they said now the Prime Minister of Israel, just elected, is not allowed to deal at all, is not allowed to talk about, the single most important issue in the country. Uh, So in America, the president can fire the attorney general. In Israel, the attorney general can fire the president, the prime minister. So that is extraordinary. And what these reforms do is they seek to uh, put some democratic checks on this. That is to say, the system of checks and balances is very important. And in Israel, there's currently one power with no checks on it. Uh, the court. And this is uh, the current proposal is to put a modest check, not take away the powers of the court, allow it to continue to uh, review laws, certainly allow it to defend minority rights but not to allow it to pick its own successors, but rather have rotating governments right-wing, left-wing, as the people elect them, have a primary role in appointing judges to the court so that it does not function as a kind of Politburo selecting its
1: own members and selecting its own successes. This seems like a pretty serious issue, what you've just outlined, right? So why is it that all of a sudden now this has come to the fore? One reason is that the, is that the court's power
0: grabs have only increased in, with time. And if they had simply satisfied themselves with saying we can strike down laws as being unconstitutional if they violate minority rights, even though there's not a legal basis for that, nobody would have minded. But in recent years, they've made some fairly extravagant extensions to their self-proclaimed power, uh, including they've claimed to be able to remove the prime minister, uh, and they've claimed to be able to strike down amendments to the laws they previously said were constitutional. So they have now said that they can decide not only what the constitution means, but what goes in it. Uh, which is a fairly shocking aggrandizement of power. Um, And these efforts have been many years in the making. So um, politicians have complained about the court's overreaching power for many, many uh, years Uh, and uh, indeed have been trying to do about, do things about it for a long time. Uh, But what they found is if you try to fix on a small level, it gets blocked. So the approach this government chose is to try to fix on a broad level. Another reason that it's right now is because Israel has had, uh, you know, it could not really happen in the past six years, because Israel has had five elections in six years, all of them caused by the Supreme Court, in fact, because the Supreme Court struck down a very important uh, legislative compromise between the religious and secular factions about um, army service. And in the absence of that compromise, there was just a cycle of elections. And the Supreme Court also invented a rule that when you have a lame duck government, a government that doesn't have a majority support, it cannot take important actions. So the court, in fact, has been the government for much of the past uh, six years, and the government has been incapacitated uh, from dealing with major questions, which uh, judicial reform certainly would, uh, would be. So basically uh, the court has been resisting any kind of reform till now. Now finally there's a significant stable majority uh, in favor of reform in the Parliament. The court has been basically, let's say, predictably uh, left-wing in its rulings. Not always left-wing, but you know, for sure primarily favoring the left. So those you know, politically allied with the left uh, say, Why should we allow these reforms? We have power now. Why change it? You know, yes, under the reforms, all parties would be able to appoint um, judges to the court. Uh, You know, the left would appoint when they get elected, the right would appoint when they get elected. But currently, the left thinks under the current system, when we're in power, there's left-wing judges appointed to the court. And when the right's in power, there's left-wing judges appointed to the court. Why should we change that? That's
1: great. Heads I win, tails you lose. It's fascinating to hear about this, okay, Um, from a very different perspective. This is actually very different than than the mantras that we're hearing, certainly in the legacy media. I can't help but think, you know, this is yet another example of this. I think of it like a propaganda information war miasma, you know, that almost any issue of significance becomes mired in, right? The thing that I find very interesting is there are actually recent revelations that there's even some U.S. funding of some of these opposition protests. And right. do you, can you clarify that?
0: So the protests are extremely well funded and extremely well organized, and uh, you know there is a question where they get the money from. Um, I think it's completely legitimate for people to uh, protest uh, wherever they get the uh, money from. It has turned out that some of the groups. Uh, who are organizing these protests have received funding from the State Department in recent years. Now, those revelations have only shown a small amount of funding to those groups, but that's direct funding from the State Department, which raises the question of whether they've received also indirect funding through other groups um, that would be uh, sort of easier to conceal uh, from the State Department. But I think much more important than the funding is the fact that the United States is giving political support for the... um, efforts to crush democracy in Israel. And by crush democracy in Israel, I mean insulate the Supreme Court as a permanent, aristocratic, democratically unchangeable body. You know, one reason America has managed to have a reasonably healthy uh, civil culture over the decades is let's say the Supreme Court makes a big mistake. Supreme Court judges are independent. They have life tenure. So they, uh, they often, they can make mistakes. So let's say they make a mistake. They don't have to lose faith in their country or give up because they think, ah, we can elect politicians who are eventually going to appoint judges who have a judicial philosophy consistent with our values, and over time we can change this result. We can't disobey the opinion of the court. It has the force of law, but it's not, a, it's not from Sinai. It's not like a biblical. Um, it's not dogma. In Israel, the court picks its own successes. So it makes a bad decision. It doesn't. It's not going to correct it. It's not going to change it. And the people have really no hope. Uh, um, the people can elect a prime minister, and the attorney general can say he's not allowed to be prime minister absent any statutory uh, authority. So amazingly, President Biden is warning Israel that allowing politicians to be involved in nominating judges is going to perhaps affect our shared democratic values. Where of course in America. Politicians do exactly that. American Supreme Court um, judges are not picked by the Supreme Court judges. Imagine if we had a rule that said the majority of the court or the chief judge uh, could uh, uh, veto uh, Biden nominees. That's how it works in Israel. President Biden, amazingly, unhappy with some decisions of the court, threatened to pack the court, which would make it effectively a tool of his own policy, you know, to increase the number of judges so he could make vast number of new appointments and immediately change all the decisions of the Supreme Court. And the same President Biden administration, who uh, was just uh, recently threatening to pack the court, is now objecting to the Israeli government seeking to appoint just two judges to the Supreme Court in its term, which is what these proposals uh, would entail. So uh, the political backing of the Biden administration to the uh, protest movement is uh, alarming, and I would say hypocritical and inconsistent with democratic
1: values. There are clearly quite a significant number of people protesting what they believe to be threats to democracy, however, right? And so do they, are they defining democracy somehow differently? Are they misled? What kind of information are you getting on the ground?
0: Well, I think the protesters are a mix of people. Uh, you know, some of them, and you can tell by their slogans, reject the legitimacy of this government, much like the resistance to President Trump. This person, Prime Minister Netanyahu, cannot be Prime Minister. He's illegitimate, despite winning election uh, after election. Uh, and I think some of them essentially are seeking to topple the government, which is a legitimate use of protest, but I think it's a, it's a farce to pretend it's truly about uh, democracy. Others are uh, alarmed. You know, as we've learned in recent years, fear sells. Right? So if you tell people, democracy is ending, Demo- one side is saying democracy is ending, Take to the streets now or you will be living in a fascist state. So people, you know, are, don't want to be living in a fascist state. Uh, they, may, they may worry, uh, whereas if—and the other side is saying, we have some reforms that are going to improve the democratic accountability and the democratic functioning of the country. So one is like a promise of hope and the other is, uh, is fear. So fear, I think, uh, works better. Uh, so I think people, are, uh, you know, uh, have m- mixed views and uh, mixed motives. Uh, you know, for example, the leaders of the opposition, I would say, as opposed to the, uh, uh, the political leaders, like the opposition leader Yair Lapid, he just lost an election. So he wants to preserve a mechanism where his preferred policy results can be mandated on the government, even if he continues to lose elections, and the Supreme Court is such a mechanism.
1: Well, to, to, I guess to finish up this topic, um, where do you see this going? The government is going to pass a law which simply says that
0: judges are not going to be the judges of who are going to be the judges. That's all it says, right? The Judges are not going to be the judges of who are the judges. It does not affect judicial independence. Judges would still serve, you know, life terms or until their pension. The government would not be able to fire judges, but the nominations for judges would now not be vetoable. By the, uh, by the judges themselves. The Supreme Court in Israel believes that it has authority to decide any issue. It has no notion of political issues or issues that are not legal issues. So the Supreme Court will almost certainly be invited re- immediately to uh, rule on this reform, and it's very likely that they'll strike it down. That is to say, they will say that a constitutional law change to how they are selected is not legal, that no one can change how the new judges are picked, and in other words, there's simply no ability to check the court. Uh, That would really, I think, imperil Israel's democracy and lead to a significant constitutional crisis. And most alarmingly is that I think many Western leaders, because they're sympathetic with the general political tenor of the court or hostile to the political tenor of the Netanyahu government, might seek to support the court in this crisis. In America, it would be unthinkable for the Supreme Court, if two judges were added to the Supreme Court, some kind of court packing plan, it would be unthinkable for the court to veto that because, you know, it's up to the political branches to, uh, to decide on the structure of the judiciary. But the Israeli Supreme Court believes it is the guardian of Israeli society and that it has the sort of superior insight into what is democratic and just, and they don't believe there's any barrier to it. And they're being encouraged to do this even um, by uh, the opposition um, and will probably be, uh, you know, encouraged. And the question is whether, uh, you know, countries like the United States are going to say, we're not getting involved, or whether they're going to say, oh, you have to respect the ruling of the court. Though, Of course, the ruling of the court makes them a judge of their own powers, which is, you know. Fundamental, fundamentally uh,
1: counter uh, inimical, inimical to uh, checks and balances. You've said we've seen quite a bit of dysfunction over the last five, six years in Israeli politics. This has had significant implications, not just for Israel, but beyond. What you're describing is very likely greater dysfunction and growing dysfunction with no clear solution. Um, I think hopefully
0: the Supreme Court Will understand that uh, deciding that they get to be the judges of who are going to be the judges of how you pick the judges uh, is completely, it would undermine their legitimacy uh, fundamentally and that they would not do that. Um, but in fact, I see, you know, there, there is a real struggle and I think it's part of a broader struggle in the West over definitions of democracy. Uh, there's definitions of democracy that essentially mean uh, rules by, uh, Supposedly enlightened elites, uh, as opposed to democracy in the sense of people voting for things, uh, and you know this is really a clash between notions of popular democracy and expertise and enlightened rule, and is you know maybe similar to other things we've seen uh, um, in recent years, including for example the the COVID issue, which was in many ways a, a controversy between uh, you know. Uh, Popular
1: will and uh, bureaucratic mandate. Well, so in this vein, this is exactly what I was what I was thinking about as you're speaking here. You know, if there's ever been, I don't know if there's ever been a greater test of, you know, whether expertise, in fact, is a good way to govern. We we may want to look at in the future. You're talking about COVID lockdown. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about COVID lockdown. All all sorts of COVID-related policy. Right. So. I I think it's an
0: interesting illustration in in, in the following way. It's completely legitimate and I think fundamentally necessary, there's no other way. If you have some kind of medical question about how to treat or deal with a virus, the people you will consult with will be uh, doctors, epidemiologists, and sometimes maybe they'll all get it wrong, but it's hard to think of of a better system. But that's about actual narrow medical questions. Uh, When you talk about public policy decisions, right, those are combinations of some medical judgment, how dangerous is this virus, how transmissible is this, with other kinds of values, right? And those values are political values. And, and, you know, know, for example, it's not unrelated to the Supreme Court issue because in Israel, the court thinks that, you know, questions of like how many judges should there be how many refugees should we take? What should be the map of the de facto border? Are all purely legal questions. Whereas they're mixtures of law and mostly policy. They're, in fact, political questions. So, uh, you know, the question of should we have a lockdown, even assuming a certain level of dangerousness of the virus, is, is a policy question because it weighs one thing, medical so facts, to the, you know, to the extent we can determine them, with Against something completely different, which is values—the value of liberty. So, uh, no epidemiologist is actually an expert in the value of liberty, or can claim to be an expert in the harm caused to you know people by not being able to work,
1: go to school, uh, and so forth. Well, there's two other issues that just strike me. Like the first one is you know just like one group of experts that happened to have the megaphone, another group of experts who had very very different, and turns out. Uh, scientifically, much more valid perspectives. <laughs> so this, there, there's, there's that issue, right? And then, okay, jump no, in. Yeah. yeah. So, it,
0: it, we see I think quite clearly the experts that had the megaphone were the government experts, the go- experts who were in the government bureaucracy, led by uh, uh, and coordinated by the National Institutes of Health. Um, but I think another lesson that we see here is that experts are not always disinterested simply by virtue of being experts. They can have agendas, right? And having a PhD does not make you free of politics, free of personal self-interest. Um, you know, and they were things they were trying to achieve. Uh, some self-interested, some out of ideas of how to control a population and uh, what you need to tell people to get them to behave a, a certain way. Uh, I think it was quite clear that the notion of you know not telling people exactly what the, the, what you see as the full truth to ensure a proper outcome uh, was legitimated, which, which is a kind of paternalistic view that we can tell people things that may not be exactly right because it's actually better for them uh, in uh, in the long run. And uh, you know I think the legitima- the delegitimization of dissenting views and the uh, the centralization of a kind of official science. Uh, which, you know, came to be known as the science. Um, So uh, it's clear, and it's clear that, well, you know, the government experts were wrong or purposefully misleading. Again, this is not a a fundamental indictment of expertise. We need expertise because we need to know things about things that we cannot establish uh, ourselves. Um, But it's about, you know, who gets the last word on what you do with the information from the experts. Every specialist deals with like a narrow set of things and you know, there is no neutral or expert way of valuing different kinds of costs, right? That is to say there is no expert who can tell you we have on one hand we want to protect old people, on the other hand there's going to be emotional harm to lots of you know, teenagers. There's no formula for that, right? It's a policy preference choice which is why that's where expertise stops when you're weighing those kind of two uh, intangibles. Um, it seems quite clear that they did not, you know, significantly consider or weigh emotional harm to, uh, to children or uh, really to anyone. Um, so as a, as a kind of model of cost-benefit regulation, it uh, was uh, not particularly expertly conducted. But you wouldn't expect them to do this, right? That's not their job. But that's a reason right, why the politicians need to be the bosses of the experts, not vice versa. Because it's impossible. There is no objective or neutral way to integrate multiple different kinds of
1: values. Well, so let's talk about this whole COVID picture, and you know, this is something you've you've written a bit about, um, uh, especially when it comes to communist China's. Co option of the international system. You know, you're an expert in international law. The Arab Israeli conflict has been your focus, but you've also looked at how what happens in these inter- multilateral international organizations like the UN and, of course, by extension, the WHO. There's a huge amount of skepticism about the value of these multilateral organizations right now because, again, they push. Policy, which turned out to be quite bad, or some of which appeared to be kind of at the be- at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. In the case of the WHO early on in the pandemic, for example, are these international organizations actually doing their job? And is it even possible for them to do it in the in this type of a uh, context?
0: Okay. So I think it's very easy to um, overstate the harms caused by the World Health Organization, but it is almost impossible to understate the benefits. Right. That is to say, uh, most international bureaucracies, like the WHO, are nothing burgers. Right? That is to say, they create an appearance or aura of authoritatively being the central international forum for dealing with something. The United Nations is another, um, another example. But uh, they're really just bureaucracies that are incapable of dealing with uh, significant issues that run into or contra the issue, the interests of um, nation states. Uh, So because they're incapable, it doesn't mean they're going to cause harm, but they will certainly not do benefit. And if one was relying on them to to help, that would be a false reliance. To the extent that one has a hope that now that you have this World Health Organization that they're going to monitor China, that they're going to uh, force China to report somehow, uh, that they're going to get to the bottom of this. That, that, I think, is an unrealistic hope from, from the get-go, uh, which, which does question the value of these institutions. So, and I think a lot of international institutions function reasonably well when you have sort of low-stakes, constant things. So if we're talking about, like, uh, reporting on scarlet fever on an ongoing basis, World Health Organization, I don't know if it's the cheapest way, uh, bureaucratic way to do it, okay. But when you get to things that significantly affect the interests of nation-states, they're funded by these states; they very heavily by China. They depend on these states for their cooperation, and uh, they're not going to. Have, we see the, you know they're not going to have a showdown with the nation states who they depend on for sort of ongoing bureaucratic functioning. Um, that's going to hurt their uh, their institution. Uh, so you know the, the real failing, I think, of the World Health Organization was failing to confront. Uh, the Communist Party uh, and uh, sort of engaging with them as if they were uh, well-intentioned. You know, we're, we're all looking just to get to the bottom of this. The World Health Organization can only know about China one way, right? whatever the Communist Party chooses to tell them. So anyone who's going to rely on the World Health Organization's rubber stamp is looking for a rubber stamp to rely on or is themselves not exercising due diligence. One of the disappointing things that came out of the early days of COVID is I would have thought that like American intelligence apparatus would have some kind of effective way of uh, figuring out if some dangerous epidemic is spreading somewhere. But uh, apparently there was reliance on the World Health Organization. The problem is states relying on it,
1: right? If you, you don't have to, you don't have to rely on it. You know, basically you're saying like, why have these institutions at all? It's, it's performative. You can have them for low stakes things. It's a lot of money. A lot of money on uh, something. The
0: that the, right, just to say, the money is is, is the least for the problems uh, compared to the harm that could be caused if you actually rely on them in these high, for for resolutions to high stakes things. Um, international organizations are, in fact, they're they're bureaucratic and they're expensive ways of uh, solving anything. And I think with all international institutions, the the trade off, the lesson is how to be able to rely on them for small things, small routine things and not put faith in them for important things. So, for example, you can have the International Atomic Energy Inspections, right? So they're probably useful for double-checking that Britain or France has the nuclear weapons stowed correctly. But for monitoring Iran's uh, nuclear program,
1: high-stakes, non-cooperative country, it would be just folly to rely upon them their main function is to create a veneer of legitimacy for people, for governments that don't deserve it, for example.
0: And that's certainly true of United Nations human rights institutions, uh, which uh, are heavily populated uh, by countries with horrible human rights records, uh, like the PRC, and for them uh, it lets them sort of participate in human rights fora and be treated, you know, warmly and receptively, potentially use those images back home. Look, here we are, you know, voting on a resolution against Israel at the Human Human Rights Council. This this does explain part of the strong anti-Israel bias at the UN. You have all these dictatorships get together. They have to vote against someone. Who can they all sort of agree as the lowest common denominator? Israel. uh, And it serves as an expiatory sort of distraction uh, distraction function. The United Nations, you know, they can, you know, do treaties about mail or international aviation, which which serve technical, useful, coordinating functions. But on fundamental things that touch upon national sovereignty, uh, it would be it, it's uh, it's a false hope. If you simply ignore them and don't take them seriously, then the harm comes from the credulity of those who look to these uh, kinds of institutions for fundamental solutions to problems caused by bad state action. And only other countries can solve that. To stand up to the, uh, to the CCP, you need power. Most countries wouldn't do it. So the, you know, the question isn't that the, the World Health Organization didn't call out the CCP, nor did the United States, right? nor, nor did England. Uh, and that's the fundamental question, because you know, the international bureaucracies are unaccountable, because they don't have a constituency, they don't have citizens countries are accountable to their citizens so we can't hope for more from international bureaucracy we can hope for more
1: from western democracies i think you have a point because you know you could argue the us just copied by what the CCP said was the correct response was this, you know, kind of drac- draconian response which it instituted. And there's there's a lot of debate about how much of it was propaganda, how much of it was real. We we certainly saw there was very significant death through all sorts of proxy measures in China early on. I'm still trying to figure out what that was because it didn't seem to be from what the virus that actually came out to the west. Right. There was a panic, and.
0: Uh, I've studied uh, I've studied um, the history of pandemic response uh, in the United States, and what's extraordinary is that the measures the United States adopted during COVID were not measures that had ever been implemented in any pandemic, including the uh, 1918 Spanish flu, which was significantly more severe uh, in its consequences. uh, The idea of sweeping prolonged lockdowns was not only uh, sort of never done before, but in plans and strategizing and wargaming out pandemic situations, which the federal government had done extensively, The the notion of a uh, global pandemic respiratory virus was not surprising or new. It had been anticipated and thought about for a really long time, mostly in the context of influenza or maybe a SARS-like event. But the scenario was not like uh, surprising And none of those plans involved lockdowns uh, of this nature. Indeed, the uh, federal pandemic planning document talked about uh, uh, isolation of sick people as being the primary uh, tool. Where did this lockdown response come from? Uh, I think it's impossible to sort of say definitively, but what seems to have happened is that uh, the Chinese government Uh, implemented a policy that was um, not a big stretch for them, uh, repressive, draconian. Uh, And then uh, the Western countries where it was first reached, Italy first, and then the West Coast just copied that response, saying, well, we have their virus, we'll have their response. Um, And so uh, Governor Newsom was the first to implement, uh, implement this in California. The other West Coast governors
1: followed immediately. And very quickly it spread. You're absolutely right. The official pandemic plans that were drawn up and you know tried and tested and frankly used all the way through to today were were very much you know lockdowns from what I from what I recall reading were looked at but were never accepted. On the other hand, there's this national security-led uh, type wargaming responses which had some similar similar measures that may have also contributed. So, especially with these, you know, this new pandemic treaty that uh, the WHO is working on, and also these new international health regulations, which many countries are subscribing to, you know, definitely are giving more powers, ostensibly more powers to international bodies. So, I want to talk. You know, you're you're an expert on international law in general. I'm not going to ask about these specific documents, and you know, you've also been looking at how. International law has been co-opted, you know. For example, in dealing with Israel, I know this has been a big focus for you. Explain to me the value of this. Is this something that 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 you know has? Is is this something that's useful? Is this something that we should we should be trying to build? And how do you actually enforce it if you do? Right. So uh, international law is clearly useful and can be very
0: helpful for certain purposes. The, the key is knowing for what purposes it can be useful uh, and not placing any kind of broader or ultimate hopes on it. Uh, you know, I think uh, the backlash against international law comes from overly aggressive claims made on behalf of it that it will usher in some kind of new world order of uh, countries that follow rules regardless of their interests uh, as a kind of global consensus system of public morality. Uh, which, so it's not going to be very effective for that. Um, international law could be useful for sort of lots of uh, little things deciding jurisdiction over vessels on the high seas, um, providing background rules of diplomatic immunity, uh, facilitating information sharing and sort of ongoing routine uh, uh, functions, civil aviation, thousands of, uh, let's say, uncontroversial uh, contexts. When International law is going to be most limited when it seeks to constrain states from doing things that are sort of particularly important to them and their uh, and, and their power. Uh, so what, first thing you have to know about international law is what is international law? Where does it come from? So international law can only come from states. International law is rules that countries agree to. Uh, that is where it comes from typically in treaties or um, or through some other mechanisms, but typically through treaties. So so there is no supreme authority above countries, and there's no supreme enforcement mechanism. What does that mean? That means international law will work well in a situation of reciprocity. Right? So if you, you know, uh, search our ambassador's bag, we can kick out your ambassador. We both have ambassadors. But in sort of uh, highly disparate endgame scenarios, we understand, let's say, uh, you know, China uh, kicks out the U.S. ambassador, U.S. can kick out Chinese ambassador. But let's say China now uh, violates human rights and oppresses a minority. What's America going to do? Say, oh, we're going to show you. We're going to oppress our minority too. It doesn't work. Right? There's no logic of reciprocity. So, so those kind of uh, international law ideas are going to be much more aspirational. Right? They're not really going to be law. They're going to be say, statements of values. Uh, and uh, If one takes them as such, they're not going to do much harm, but if one places sometime, somehow hope in them, uh, then they will ultimately be uh, distracting uh, because
1: there is no mechanism—and the United Nations certainly is not going to be that mechanism—for making them uh, enforceable. That's really fascinating. So I, of course, I'm thinking of it in the context of class of harms, like the crimes against humanity and genocide right, that, were, that were developed after World War II. China is involved in. Very much, the Chinese Communist Party is involved.
0: Simply defining the crime is not going to create the policeman who is going to go enforce it. That requires political will on the part of countries. And what we've seen is calling it an international crime does not create that political will. That is to say, if if Western countries did not want to create sanctions or consequences on China. For creating the COVID disaster, what are the chances that because of international law they're going to do something about uh, groups in China? There's a note, international law is used often as a substitute for direct moral appeals. Say, ah, international law says it's kind of like a way of, that's like uh, we don't have a global religion, right? we're not united by uh, shared faith, so um, international law might become a proxy for that. It doesn't really work well as a proxy, so I think you know, appeals to morality are more honest and
1: effective. Well, we've certainly seen that there, doesn't, there don't seem to be very strong enforcement uh, mechanisms removing PNTR status for China by the U.S. For, unless they fix their, some of their human rights problems. That might be a useful tool. But right? it's, not,
0: it's not going to come from international law. It's going to come from political will in the individual country. That's the key. When countries delegate powers to, uh, you know, take decisions, those decisions are now sort of out of the hands of democratic processes. Um, so that is, you know, something to be, to be careful about. That's why the United States has also not joined the International Criminal Court. Um, so the, you know, and international institutions can be used as a mechanism of insulating political decisions from, uh, from. Uh, democracy. right? That's why the Obama administration got the Iran deal passed as a Security Council resolution, because that's not something Congress can veto. There was an idea after World War II that it could be a basis for some kind of shared morality. I think that's still appealing to some, but in fact it is not. Actors like the Chinese Communist Party have a cynical viewpoint. They can sign the treaties and not
1: believe in the ideals. I think it would be an understatement to say that um, the international situation right now is fraught. You're telling me that these international institutions in this sort of a context are not going to be helpful. No, but uh,
0: but that's not that just makes it like the entire rest of human history. There's no genie in a bottle that's going to fly out from the United Nations whatever organization and solve all of humanity's problems. We are left with the problems as, uh, as nation states. And you know I take a kind of different perspective. We live in a extraordinarily peaceful time by global standards, by standards of militarized conflict. We live in an extraordinarily prosperous time, and I think what you know, much of the Western world at least is struggling with is more the question of what are its values now that the normal problems of you know, getting food and uh, avoiding being conquered uh, have
1: been taken care of. Right? So the, 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 these are advanced problems, at least. I was told recently by uh high-level government official that we might end up you know, voting ourselves into a situation like Venezuela with the Chinese Communist Party, with its you know, disregard for, frankly, basic humanity waiting in the shadows to assume the mantle of a global power broker and decision-maker. Uh, I agree that the United States does not seem uh sufficiently
0: prepared or interested in the global challenge uh, posed by uh, Chinese Communist expansion. I think that's been seen from a long time already in the South Pacific Sea, which is an area I know well because it poses lots of international law issues. Uh, China has made some extraordinarily broad uh, territorial claims against basically most of its neighbors, uh, and under the premise of this has created these military base islands. Uh, which the United States has not been particularly effective at challenging, but now projects their power deep into, uh, into the Pacific. Uh, and uh, at this point, it just seems they're more interested in winning. That doesn't look good to me. Oh, we just have to get it, but the, the United States is capable. It's, just, it's a matter of interest. So uh, any final thoughts as we finish? Um, uh, yeah, on the whole, uh, despite the, you know, all we do is talk about here uh, about problems. I think uh, all surmountable problems, and more problems of
1: um, knowing what we want than being able to get it. Well, Professor Eugene Kontorovich, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you all for joining Professor Eugene Kontorovich and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.